Welcome to our discussion segment on the themes of American history. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. And today we're talking about how far we have come, a survey of American history. Let's get started. Hey, John. How's it going? Going great. Welcome, everyone, to Season 2 of 15-Minute History in our discussion segments. We are very glad you're here. Yes, we are. Welcome back. We're glad to be back. Let's jump into this. All right. So when we first talked about Season 2, the idea was uh, brought up to do a quick survey of American history, which is what we're going to be talking As about. As I recall, there were, there, there were some objections on my part. How on earth do you expect me to condense 200 years of history into five pages? I just had faith in you, and then you <laughs> yeah. you did it. So I was no. like, that's right. It so had to be done. That being said, I uh, assume that this was not an easy task, correct? Finding the themes was not easy. Once I had found the themes, it was actually pretty simple to uh, to lay out the narrative. But but trying to condense all of American history into a, a couple key themes, that was the really, really tough yeah. part. Yeah, I bet. So in the first section, speaking of themes, you talk about a nation of equals. Uh, obviously a very important topic. Uh, we, yes. we, we see it throughout our history. And in terms of equality, you spend a lot of time talking about equality and how it's been so elusive. When yes. you think about all men being created equal and being seen as equals by the law, by our society. Can you give a, I don't know if this is possible or mm -hmm. not, but a quick breakdown on why did it take so long to remedy the wrong of inequality? Well, you've got a couple, a couple factors here. The first, not barrier to equality, but the first reason why it took so long is that the fact that we are a democracy in that we don't have a system where the president can simply impose his or her idea of equality on the nation. I happen to think that's a good thing because some presidents would have imposed one type of equality. Some presidents would have imposed a very different kind of equality. And some have. <laughs> and some and some have. That's very true. So that's one reason why it takes so long. It takes a while to to get these laws and these and these changes to laws through our democratic process. You also have the fact that you have federal, state, and local government. It takes a while to strip all of the segregation and racism out of each level of government. But more broadly, you run up against the, the social aspects of racism and inequality that are not unique to the United States, that basically exist in all of our hearts because we are flawed, sinful human beings. All of us are capable of the same kind of racism that existed in this country for you know, about two centuries. So how the, the, the question of how do you solve the, the legal question of equality without impinging on other people's right to believe what they want, as, as awful as we might think it is. Sure, you could pass a law making it illegal to be a racist, but you have the First Amendment. People have to be able to, they have the right to say what they want, and that includes stuff that is offensive. I get offended every time I turn on certain news channels, but I don't want them shut down or anything like that. People who hear racist, racist statements will rightly so, I think, get offended, but that doesn't mean that you silence that. So where do you draw that line between racism and actual discrimination and inequality? That has been a really, really tough needle for us to thread for the last hundred years. Okay. Yeah, I agree. It's the idea of trying to legislate morality. Exactly. Like how possible exactly. is that? I would say it's pretty impossible. It is. Because in terms of morals, there are some people who would define certain morals a specific way and yeah. others who would do it some You can way. force moral behavior on people, but you can't force someone to be a moral person. Yeah. So in terms of the, the threat of inequality that has run through our history, we see remedies to it. We yes. see sacrifices made to fix it. 
Um, we see court cases. We see war mm-hmm. or a war. We see actions taken by by people on both sides to make that dream of equality possible. Yes. Um, so when you think about all of those key turning points in your studying of history, have has it gone from how bad it was, talking slavery, mm-hmm. to now in any other nation in history? Or is, is America, is this experience of moving from this, this scar upon the American face, which, mm-hmm. which is slavery, yeah. to now where not only is there no slavery, but no American in several generations has ever worn a chain. There's never been that type of oppression um, it's it's just gone. Mm-hmm. I mean, of has, legal oppression you're right, talking about, correct, yes. correct. So to distinguish again, legal versus social discrimination. Right, right. So uh, it, has that happened any other place in history? It has. Um, we we actually talked a little bit about this in uh, in season one in the last episode on uh, the Declaration of Independence. You have had instances. Most of the time, it takes a war. It takes some kind of violence. Uh, the United States is not unique in that uh, in that sense, but. Yeah, I, yes, that's the that's the answer answer to that question. It it has happened elsewhere. Okay. Yeah. So as we think about the evolution of inequality to equality within the law mm-hmm. specifically, yes. Um, we I think about uh, Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case. Right. Uh, before that, the Dred Scott case, mm-hmm. um, and then going further into the future, the Civil Rights Act of nineteen sixty four. Um, why, like when we think about precedent, um, why did it take so many different court cases in order to confirm that this is wrong? Because we think about Dred Scott, and then we get yep. to Brown versus Board of Education, yeah. separate but equal. With Plessy Aaron versus Ferguson in between, right. setting up precedent. It's just like point, point, yeah. point, and then we still needed the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. Why, why did it have to take that course? Yep. Because the Supreme Court, again, the way our system is set up, it relies on precedent, but it can also overturn precedent if it wants to. Dred Scott was what you would call an activist uh, Supreme Court decision, meaning the the chief justice at the time, uh, Roger Taney, he imposed upon the court and upon the nation his opinion of what the law says rather than what the law itself says. So that was an activist decision, but that set the precedent of slavery. That's dealt with by the 13th Amendment. Slavery is abolished everywhere, but there's still the lingering precedent of inequality between the races. Fast forward to 1896, Plessy versus Ferguson. You have separate but equal being enshrined. That's new precedent. Jumping ahead then to 1954, Brown versus Board of Education is another activist decision in which the court saying, regardless of what precedent says, we are going to overturn that precedent and say, this is the new standard for America. As a modern example, not in terms of the same weight or anything like that, but it would be like the Supreme Court today overturning Roe v. Wade and saying, you know what, the precedent is this, but we are going to set a new standard for the country and overturn Roe v. Wade. Okay. Supreme Courts can reinterpret the Constitution. It takes a law, an act of Congress drafted and passed by the people's representatives to make a permanent change in our laws. And that's what the Civil Rights Act was. It basically codified and enshrined the precedent set in Brown versus Board of Education a decade earlier in the actual law. So now what the Supreme Court has to do, if they want to go ever go back to segregation, they have to overturn not an earlier court decision, which is relatively easy. They have to, they have to strike down a federal law, which is much harder to do. Right. Not, not much harder. It's, it's the same process, a 5-4 decision, but it's much more controversial. Yeah. 
So just for the uh, purpose of our of our audience, can mm-hmm. can you briefly go over how a law is passed? It's not a no. deviation. <laughs> no. Okay. No. What I would say is you can go on Schoolhouse Rock and watch I'm Just a Bill. Yes, I'm Only a Bill. Okay, Ben Sass. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah. So in terms of let's talk about the difference between social justice and legal justice when it comes to inequality. And Ooh, how, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah. How, how those two things are different because I think nowadays people blend the two. Yeah. So legally, there's there's federal laws protecting all races, all classes that you Correct. can't you cannot discriminate legally, but it still happens socially. So if you, you could well, you you can. Generally speaking, you're right. You cannot discriminate legally. There have been recent Supreme Court cases, mainly dealing with sexual orientation. We think of the Colorado Baker and the pizza uh, joint here in Northern Indiana. Uh, where they were able to say, you know, our, we're not going to let our products be used at homosexual weddings and things like that. So, But generally speaking, you're right. You cannot legally discriminate unless discrimination is kind of trumped by religious religious conviction and things like that. Leaving that aside, because that's a little too complicated and we're, we're already pretty thick in the weeds here, which is fine. That's what these discussions are for. The difference between legal justice and social justice, broadly speaking, is legal justice is based on what the law says. Social justice is based on what society and basically what the mob says and what the mob wants. You think of these, quote, social justice warriors, a term that I don't particularly like to use, but these kids who are out on the streets marching or who are, who are on social media pushing for their various social causes, many of which are good causes, but they're not appealing to the law. They're appealing to this is what I feel. This is what I think, what I believe. In my classes, I try to train my students, don't say I think, I feel, I believe. It is possible to think in concrete terms. And thinking in concrete terms means looking, what does the law say? If the law says that you can't have a tax of 100, a wealth tax of 100%, and the law doesn't say that, but we'll just say that it did. If the law said you can't have a tax of 100% on wealthy Americans, but social, uh, social justice warriors said, but I want it. That would be social justice because they're ignoring what the law itself actually says. And there are real examples. I don't want to get too political in this podcast, but that's just kind of one example. Right. Of so thing. if they wanted to change the like, if, if they had a complaint against the law and they wanted to change the law, that's a different conversation. Yes. Than saying, I and, feel and like I fine. want to change it. And they're, and they're perfectly free to do that. We as Americans have the right to petition our government for a redress of grievances. Basically, hey, we want we we think this law is wrong. And we want to see that law change. That's what Martin Luther King was doing. In his I Have a Dream speech, that's what he is doing. He is asking that the laws conform to what society is starting to call for. His message to the American people and to the world is there are basically two sets of laws. There are the laws of God and there are the laws of man. And until the laws of man conform to the laws of God, you can't really have a sense of justice. Not equality, not fairness, but justice. He appealed to that universal sense that we all have a basic right and wrong. None of us want to be judged by the color of our skin. We want to be judged by the, the content, content of our character. Of our character. Right. That's why he, his message resonated so much more than any of the other civil rights leaders of that era with non-black citizens. A quarter of his audience in 1963, when he gave that speech in Washington, D.C., was white. And they agreed with him because he was appealing not to the the certain groups that other civil rights leaders were were uh, appealing to he wasn't appealing to the the kinds of uh, he wasn't in, engaged in the same tactics that a lot of the twitter mobs that go after certain people because they have violated some kind of social code 
that we're not supposed to, to violate. He's not doing that. He is saying everyone, whether you're white or black, whether you're male or female, whether you're rich or poor, we all want justice. We all want equal treatment under the law. Being That's legal justice. That is not social justice. He wants to see the laws change. And I think one of the brilliant things about that speech, too, is that he's speaking to everyone as equals. Exactly. It's, it's like He names yep. at the very end of his speech, he's, he made it very, very clear. I'm speaking to Jews, Gentiles, mm -hmm. Protestants, and Catholics. Yeah. Black men, white men, like everyone. We're all equal. Equal. Going yes. back to all men are created equal. Yeah. He brought it, he brought it full circle. So amazing. He's thinking on that speech. I just get chills. Yep. It's amazing. So uh, going on to honest friendship with all nations, I had a couple of specific questions and then a broad one. All right. Uh, specifically asking, uh, I want to explore the reason for the Monroe Doctrine. Why did we adopt it? Mm -hmm. uh, why did it last so long? And why did we adopt it again? So explain that timeline and the reasons why. Sure. The, uh, the reason why we initially imposed it is because since the founding of this country and really since the colonial period, America had been dragged, sometimes kicking and screaming, into European conflicts. And we as a new nation, we really needed some, some me time, basically. We needed to take <laughs> care of ourselves. We needed the chance to grow, to develop our own society, and not be constantly dragged uh, into a war either backing France or backing Great Britain. Now, it's very fortunate that the Napoleonic Wars ended when they did and that you don't have a century of more wars in Europe. So basically the Europeans, the British and the French especially, but also other countries, are willing to allow the United States really to kind of do their own thing. We are able to to grow as you know and and still be honest friends with everyone, trade with those countries. America has always been about trade. Our foreign policy is basically let's sell you stuff. We want to make money off of you. And that worked because of peace in Europe and also because of distance. The British are the only country that ever sent large expeditionary forces to North America for wars and by 1815 that was no longer necessary. Right. When we think about getting involved in foreign affairs, if we had not had this doctrine, I instantly think of shipping troops. Like mm -hmm. we send troops and supplies and cash to an ally to help them in a war effort. Was part of the reason why we had this doctrine so that we did not have to do that? To an extent, I mean, we didn't have the ability to send troops or cash over to a European country. Uh, one, our navy was too small. Two, the country was pretty much bankrupt after the War of 1812. And three, we don't have the vast surpluses of stores that we will have a century later when we're supporting the Allies in World War One and World War II. Okay. It was, it was basically a recognition of our relatively weak position in, uh, in the wider world. Okay. That's, that's why it... So that's why it began. That's that's the origin of the Monroe Doctrine right there. Yeah. So in thinking of World War One and World War Two, after World War One we pulled back again. Correct. Um, and then World War Two we remain engaged. Mm -hmm. uh, why did we pull back after the First World War? Yep. And why did we remain engaged after the Second? We pulled back after the First World War for a couple reasons. One, the failed peace. People are looking at the Versailles Treaty saying this is not going to be a a lasting peace. And we do not want to send American soldiers to die in the fields of Europe, as I said in the podcast, for another dynastic squabble. We couldn't have foreseen the rise of Hitler or anything like that. We simply thought that a new German Kaiser would eventually rise and there'd be a rehash of World War I maybe 30, 40 years down the line. We don't want any part of that. The second reason why is because America is very much a, not politically, but just kind of socially a conservative nation. We like to go back to the way things were beforehand. The, the, the First World War was such a shock to our system, sending so many people overseas, radically transforming our society. We want to go back to that. And so we do. In the 1920s, most of the progressive reforms implemented during the war are repealed, 
and we go back to how it was before the war. Mm -hmm. Now, World War II, we realize, okay, European and East Asian affairs do affect the United States. Distance is no longer uh, any kind of protection. And it stinks. It's a dirty job. But someone has to do it. Someone has to be in Europe basically manning the barricades against this deadly idea of communism. Communism is an expansionist political philosophy, specifically in the late 1940s, at least in the opinions of, of America's leaders. We have to stop it, as the podcast said, over there so it doesn't happen. We don't get communism here in this country. Okay. So we need to maintain a military presence in Japan, and we need to maintain a military presence in Europe, and we need to start sending money and supplies to strengthen our allies. So why is that America's job? Why, why are we the only ones that are expected to do this? Because in 1945, not talking about today, but in 1945, we were the only superpower still standing, other than the Soviet Union. Which we didn't want them Which to Which we did not want them right. expanding. So it's, as I said, it's a dirty job, but somebody has to do it. We were the ones who, who yeah. were available. Britain and France are devastated by the war. Yeah. And there's no one else that could compare to our economic, specifically, and also military might. Yep. So it's got to be us. Yep. Stinks, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah, I agree. So in terms of subsidies and relations, mm -hmm. when I think of a subsidy, it's like we give cash to our allies to help prop them up to offset people who are not our allies in order to make them out of power. Right, yeah. yeah. So in order to maintain that balance, did that begin in World War II or post-war or has that been going on since we've been a nation or since since the Yeah, founding? it's well, it's actually a precedent. We were following a British precedent. Historically, Britain has not waged huge wars on the continent. They pay other people to fight their wars for them. We actually took that idea from them. That's how the British beat Napoleon. But anyway, America started subsidizing at least on a large scale, yes, after World War II. There were a couple subsidies, especially in Central and South America, but in terms of global security policy, that starts with World War II. Okay, great. Yeah. How, how do we justify some of the people that we subsidized? Because they haven't always been in our camp. No, they have Ideologically not. or morally. Yeah, or... we subsidized uh, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden, two people that fairly recently we've had to fight against. So uh, how do we justify that historically? When we think that obviously it's easy to sit here and talk about it and say, you know, we shouldn't have done that or yeah. we should have done that. What? Why did we do it? Mm -hmm. yeah, why, because, do, why do we continue to do it? Because it's, it's, it's a question of the lesser of two evils. Our goal in the Cold War is stop the spread of communism. So if we have to prop up or if we're able to prop up democratic societies in Western Europe uh, and in Southeast Asia, great, we'll do that. But if there are no small-D democratic rulers, people who respect and honor the will of the people, available, well, then we have to go to authoritarians like Pinochet in Chile, like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, like Godin Diem in Vietnam. They're not someone you would want to have at your home for dinner. They're not people who in, in normal times the United States would have anything to do with, but because they're not communist, we have to support them. That's our, our, our single-minded goal. It, it is particularly short-sighted because it does cause problems in the long run for us, but that was our policy. Interesting. So on to theme three, progress, positive, and negative. When I heard this section and I heard the two paragraphs, I felt like it was like a night and day comparison. Because, it was. And kind of, because yeah. in the first paragraph, you say, you show how technology has, has helped us. And then mm -hmm. the second one, you talk about how 
it's caused some complications. I don't yeah. want to say cause problems uh, because I don't think technology on its own causes a problem. No, it's the people, I, I don't think so. Yeah, so it's the people actually engaging in it. Are they? Are we abusing it? Mm -hmm. Are we not? And I go back to thoughts on uh, C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. When we think about technology and like taking two steps forward and four steps back. Yeah. Off air, we've talked about the Franklin stove, like the the mm -hmm. the creation of the Franklin stove. When you think about that, it wasn't four steps back; it was like yeah. four steps forward because it kept your house from burning down. Yep. But my point is, there's always someone who is affected by any new technological development. Yeah. When you know, when the buggies, when horses and buggies were replaced by cars, buggy whip manufacturers, they went out of business. That yeah. hurt them. That's a a small step back, but it's a tremendous leap forward. Yeah. So how many steps back have we taken with the advent of all of this technology? I can't give you a number. As I said in the podcast. 30 steps 30 back. Ste yes. <laughs> there have been 29.37 steps back. I think there have been some pretty serious steps back. As I talked about in the podcast, we were able to talk to people on the other side of the globe. And yet we have trouble, especially young people, have trouble having a conversation the way we're doing sitting face to face. That can then lead to more serious problems down the road as those kids go out and get a job, they go to they go off to college, they start contributing to society, they're living their life through a screen, and they don't have the tools of basic human interaction. That's a pretty serious step backwards. Now, the step forward, of course, is the ability to communicate, the ability to have the sum of human knowledge at your fingertips. That's a huge step forward. So we have to balance out the risk and reward of these innovations. And the good thing is, in our society, because we are a free and democratic society, we as individuals can choose how much time we spend on these devices. Parents have the ability to say, sorry, kids, we're not having screen time today, or we're only going to spend 30 minutes on your screens. You can even say that to your teenager. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think, too, that there's, there's an answer in balance. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's so many people who say that students need to have access to screens all the time so they can become technologically savvy. Y you use a tablet or a piece of technology to accomplish an objective. Yes. It's a tool. It's not a rec tool. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's a combination of students or young people being able to learn social interaction face-to-face -face yeah. and then eventually graduating to a technology where they can interact with people across the world referencing their experience talking to people face-to-face. -face. Right. So you have that counterbalance where you don't go to the extreme that we see on Twitter. Citing an earlier example that you said, you don't cite the mob. You don't go right. into like somebody tweeting at somebody else is not, a con is not specifically a conversation. You balance it with, I've had the experience interacting with people in a classroom face-to-face. I see them as people, and mm -hmm. then you apply that experience to your online engagement. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I totally understand and agree with that. So, um, I know that you can't put a number on it, but do you believe that we are taking four or five steps back with the advent of this technology? And what's what's the price of convenience, I, I guess I would say? Because to your point, we can access the whole of human knowledge. Mm -hmm. We don't have to go to the library and work for it. We, right. we can actually search for it anytime. And just in terms of uh, being able to order online, being able to shop online, be able to do all this stuff, all of the tech, whether it be through an appliance, through our smartphone. Yeah. Like, what's the price of this, and can we avoid the extreme of where it could go? Well, if we're talking individuals or, or the country, individuals, you can make choices, again, in how much of this technology you choose to use. I will never have a smart fridge or something like that. I don't need that level of technology in my life. I will never have an Alexa or, or one of those Google Home device things or anything like that. I don't need that level of technology in my life. 
as a society, we have to deal with the reality that automation and robotics is going to start to put people out of business. One of the largest industries in this country is trucking, shipping goods from place to place. That industry is going to be gone once self-driving cars become safe. safe. <laughs> and, yeah, they become safe and they're, and they're regulated and all of that stuff. We have to decide how far is too far. Do we at some point say, all right, as a society, you know what? We don't need factories building everything that we have. We need to still have jobs for people. Now, what we're creating is more leisure time. As people lose their job, they have time to think and to pursue their own interests. And I'm not talking about fun employment, the, uh, the statement made 10 years ago during the recession. I'm talking about people recognizing that maybe there's a new, a new industry, a new field, something that I can pursue that might lead to a job. For some people, it's not going to. Maybe for most people, especially if they're older, not to denigrate old people because I'm sitting across the table from one. But the... <laughs> Had to be done. Uh, not uh, that old, folks. <laughs> just, just throwing it out there. Some people are going to use that leisure time to innovate, to create new technologies that will then replace, hopefully, those jobs. That's the basic message of market capitalism. And we have a social safety net for, for those who, who don't. So as a society, are we going to learn from this? Are we going to progress further? I hope so. I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't predict that we will. Historically, we've ha we have done this. Uh, if you go back about a 120 years ago, someone suggested closing the U.S. Patent Office because, quote, everything had been invented. Oh. And then you get the second Industrial Revolution and, and so new technologies and so, and so on and so forth. <laughs> so there are periods where we kind of plateau. Maybe we're in that. I'm, I'm still waiting for... Uh, my flying car or my hover bike or something like that. Yeah. I haven't seen that yet. I've been promised that since I was a little kid when Joe was in his mid-200s. <laughs> <laughs> Come at me with all you have. <laughs> I embrace it. So uh, that that's a good lead into a bright future. The yes. Final section. In terms of uh, you talk about our mistakes and understanding how we embrace them, mm -hmm. how we learn from them. We look at, I think you cited earlier, the difference between the individual and the government. Yes. Will we learn from our mistakes based on what you've seen in history? Mm -hmm. Can you give our audience uh, an answer for both of those? Yes. As individuals, we tend to, just not as Americans, as human beings, we tend to eventually learn from our mistakes. Some people have to uh, make the same mistake three, four, five, ten, twenty times. But eventually you learn not to touch the hot stove, not to date this kind of person, not to pursue this kind of career, something like that. Yeah. As a society... Uh, historically, we have really struggled to learn from our mistakes. Uh, if you look at foreign policy, if you look at economic policy, if you look at really any level of government policy, we tend to go through cycles of embracing a bad idea, realizing, nope, that doesn't work, coming up with a new idea, and then you have a period of everything working pretty well, and then some people get bored and they say, hey, let's go back and try this idea that has never worked, but we'll do it right this time. That's the cyclical nature of, uh, uh, of our society. Maybe we'll break it this time. There have been periods where we learned from our, from our mistakes. I certainly hope so, but I, I can't. Again, my, my crystal ball isn't working, so I can't, I can't give it. An example of that, I would say, is uh, Jordan Peterson's book that, that he wrote this past year. And he became famous after an interview back in January. Mm -hmm. So since writing that book, and I actually specifically since that interview, the the lessons that he goes over in that book have been adopted by hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. In terms of social change, stuff like that happens. Like somebody will come up with a system of thought that's not new. And he says this is not new. Yeah. He just identifies, here are the social indicators. 
he just gives practical advice in each chapter mm-hmm. and, and outlines all, all these things. And this is not a plug for that book. I just wanted to say, like, that's an example to me of individuals who obviously make up a society learning about something new, realizing that they need to fix it, and then advancing towards that solution sure. in yep. mass. And so you've seen this movement now as a result of that, I think in a positive way, mm-hmm. where people are taking responsibility for their own actions, not uh, befriending people who will destroy them, yep. you know, all those, <laughs> those types of things that Good. he talks about in the book. And so I, I think that the, the more we, we open ourselves up to those ideas, the more as a society we will shift and we will look back and be like, let's not do that thing that didn't work again. Yeah. So yeah, it didn't um, work last time. It won't, it won't work this time. Yeah. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of how far we've come. I'm Joe Parker and I'm John Streeter. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help. Thank you. And see you next week.